The pickers were everywhere in the east, picking through plantations, picking through the old red barns of New England. They were antique hunters, freelance rummagers, known as pickers to the people higher up the food chain in museums and antique stores. In the 1920s, they were looking for anything old and American in the old American colonies of the East Coast. They were looking for an America that no longer existed, if it ever had. The America of Washington and Hamilton and Jefferson, that by the 1920s had morphed into myth, wooden teeth and cherry trees. And when they found it, they sold it. Sold it to collectors who gave it to museums, who assembled all of it in rooms of their own, like dioramas of the dead. And when the lights went on, it was as though all the things the pickers had picked had been there all along, waiting for the right moment, the right reason, to be resurrected. It was Americana. This is The Object, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Today, the story of America's great colonial revival, when the nation was changing, and the battle for its soul ran straight through its art. It's Americana. I'm Tim Gehring. James Ford Bell lived in a mansion on a hill, built by his father in 1908, beside Lake Minnetonka, where the titans of the Twin Cities played in the clean air and water, far from the factories like landed gentry. His father called it Belford, and the newspapers, playing along, called it the family's country home. His friends called him J.F.B. He was the flower king of the world, the kind of flower you sift into cakes and cookies. In the flower capital of the world, where mills on the Mississippi pounded grain in stone towers of screaming belts and whistles. He formed General Mills in 1928, led the company for 20 more years, long after he'd surrendered his crown to other kings in other countries. But by then, his interests had moved on. He bought his first rare book in 1926 about Sir Francis Drake, the high-class pirate who looted the West Indies in the 1500s. Then he bought some more, hundreds more, millions of dollars more, including the first edition of Marco Polo's travels. He bought rare maps, too, the kind with cockeyed continents and sea monsters, from a time when white people were fanning out from Europe for God and country, including the first map to call this place America. Soon his shelves in Belford were filling up, until he had traced as much of America's origins as he could in words and pictures, and went to look for America itself. JFB knew some pickers, from afar mostly, but he knew these guys just the same. The antique pickers who sometimes became dealers, who sometimes became friends, and more to their clients. John Eldon Lloyd Hyde, who went by J.A., was all of these things at times to his clients, the collectors and curators who came to him for antiques and advice and companionship. His family once had money too, not Belford bucks, but enough for Lloyd Hyde to remember, before his father died young and his siblings died young, and the money slipped away, before he became a picker. He was good at it, hitting the barns on the back roads, the crumbling townhomes of the once entitled, 
the archetype, as Christie's auction house later put it, of the indefatigable searcher for the rare and beautiful. He was just 24 in the spring of 1926, fresh off the picker circuit, working as a buyer of antiques at a Manhattan department store, when his big break stepped off the train from Minneapolis. Russell Plimpton, head of the Minneapolis Institute of Art, a former curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, now a Midwesterner on the make. They had dinner in New York, and Plimpton let on that he had a big empty museum, just over a decade old, and was swinging for the fences to fill it up with trophies. Silver if he could afford it, American silver. And he had a certain piece in mind, a tea set by Paul Revere, the man of the midnight ride, the ultimate American. JFB, back in Belford, had offered to buy it for his growing collection of Americana and for the museum when he was gone. Lloyd Hyde, over dinner, offered to get it. Americana never was about America. It was about Europe, Northern Europe, and Britain, where the first American colonists came from, and Southern and Eastern Europe, too, where most of the immigrants in the early 1900s came from, with a little more than their foreign clothes and customs. It was less about the revolution than a new battle, over what America stood for and who was allowed to stand up. The American wing of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York opened in 1924, just a few months after Congress passed the National Origins Act. The law restricted immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe and banned Arabs and Asians from coming. An unsettling law designed to settle the question, who was an American? It was the end of open borders. But there was nothing unsettling about the American wing. It was a charming time machine, a string of colonial period rooms made of paneling pried from old mansions, fireplaces cut out and scrubbed out and installed without chimneys, stocked with antique furniture and flotsam as though the room had only recently been abandoned, like you could still smell the smoke from the corncob pipe on the mantel. They were mirages, winding from the 1600s to the early 1800s before the realities of the Statue of Liberty and the huddled masses and the end of slavery. The wing was an immersive suggestion, a passive aggression, a Pinterest page of aspirational design, representative, said one of its creators, of the homes of men by whose efforts and sacrifices the Republic was made possible. It was, the museum explained, to teach newly arrived immigrants about American history and values so that they might assimilate more easily lest the influx of foreign ideas into America shake its foundations. Russell Plimpton had helped lay the groundwork for the wing as a curator at the Met before moving west to Minneapolis. He was still in touch with the men who made it, who warned him all about the fakes and fakers sloshing around in the red-hot Americana market. And so when Lloyd Hyde acquired the Paul Revere tea set in 1926, but had it sent to himself in New York instead of Bell in Minneapolis, 
and spent a week showing it to other collectors, Bell became impatient. He took the train as fast as he could to finally meet this former picker. Bell got his tea set, and he put Lloyd Hyde on the trail of a bigger prize, an entire colonial room, which Lloyd Hyde found. Two rooms, actually, in Charleston, South Carolina, in a house built in 1772 for a plantation owner and superintendent of Indian affairs for the English king, a Scotsman by birth, American only in hindsight, so un-American, actually, that he fled Charleston in 1775 for a loyalist colony in the swamps of Florida. Bell bought the floors, the fireplace, everything in the rooms, had them shipped to Minneapolis, filled them with Americana. And when they opened at the Minneapolis Institute of Art in 1931, rooms that would make the men jealous break Lloyd Hyde, slavery and Native Americans were not mentioned, though they are now. The rooms were displayed, the museum said, to preserve a record of such a cultivated and reasonable age. Bell dedicated them to his parents, the Bell and Ford of Belford. Bell was worried, worried that the America he knew was disappearing, and it was. The frontier was closing, the forests were falling, the lakes were sick. Even the kind of companies he built were under fire, and he could do something about it. So when the ducks began disappearing from his favorite hunting spots, he built a research station to bring them back. And when the wolves in Minnesota were hunted nearly to extinction, he built a museum to educate and preserve their memory if he failed. And when the world seemed to close in on itself after World War II, too exhausted by depression and war to explore new lands and new ideas, Bell built a room in the public library at the University of Minnesota, filled it with antiques from the Age of Exploration, the era that had spawned America as we know it, lined it with all the rare books and maps he had collected, and called it the treasure room, as though in looking for the secret to American success, he believed he had found something singular and precious, which of course he had. Bell was an old man by then, and when he died in 1961, the Minneapolis Institute of Art gathered most of the Americana that he and others had collected, including the Paul Revere tea set and a bust of George Washington and landscapes of America as it used to be tucked the objects around its American period rooms, called it the James Ford Bell American Wing. It lasted only a decade until the museum broke up the wing during a modernist expansion. And by then, Nixon had resigned and the Vietnam War had shattered solidarity and Martin Luther King was dead. Immigration law had finally changed again in 1965, favoring families of immigrants already here no matter where they were from. And America, for anyone who went looking for a single, simple definition, was harder and harder to find. Here's a coda. The Met's American wing was revamped over a decade, reopening in 2009 with a ribbon cutting by Michelle Obama its period rooms reinterpreted to better reflect our times if not their own. 
Only one description of the original intention remains on a touchscreen in one of the rooms. The line about teaching newly arrived immigrants about American history and values so that they might assimilate more easily. Mia's Charleston rooms, acquired by Bell, were reinterpreted in 2017 with art and objects by Native Americans and the stories of enslaved Africans to fill out the life and times of their original owner.